the invitation to come. And Pastor Kurt, thank you for opening up your pulpit to me and to Phil as well. Uh, I have a tremendous appreciation for all of our faithful shepherds out there. I truly do. Uh, so many of these faithful brothers are all around the world, uh, in, as a matter of fact. Uh, one of the great blessings that has been mine as an evangelist is to be able to travel around the world. I've been in 31 different countries and some of them multiple times and it doesn't matter where in the world I am. Uh, I find like-minded believers, I see good churches pastored by faithful men, unknown. Uh, they're not being asked to speak at the big conferences. Nobody knows who they are, but Christ does. And these men will be at the front of the line one day. So, uh, Pastor Kurt, thank you, brother. It's been an honor. Well, let us begin, dear ones. Uh, this morning, I've been asked to teach on physical healing. Physical healing. And I want to contrast what many of the uh, prosperity preachers would have us to believe about healing and what Scripture tells us about physical healing. According to the prosperity preachers, healing is always God's will. This from Benny Hinn. He says, he promises to heal everyone, any whatsoever, everything, all our diseases. That means not even a headache, sinus problem, not even a toothache, nothing. No sickness should come your way. God heals all your diseases. Bill Johnson, pastor of Bethel Church, Redding, California, he says, I refuse to create a theology that allows for sickness. He refuses to create such a theology. Well, it matters not if he allows such a theology, God's word does. Now, physical healing really is a racket, and it goes back to the early leaders of the charismatic movement. John Alexander Dowie is quoted as saying, don't be stingy with your money. If you do, the Lord may be stingy with his cures. No better today, sir. Dowie would thunder at a debilitated cancer subject or a person with epilepsy. Well, sir, if you are not better, it is your own fault. You either don't trust in the Lord or you are concealing some infamous crime. So if you begin with the premise that it is always God's will to be healed and a person prays for that healing, for days, weeks, months, years, some people for decades, but the healing does not come, then the question must be asked, whose fault is it? By definition, it cannot be God's fault, right? So the only other one to whom to look is the one who was sick. It's his fault, it's her fault, because doesn't have enough faith, hasn't made the right positive confessions, maybe hasn't given enough money into the, the men of God's pockets, or maybe you are not even saved. Watch this from Kenneth Copeland. Well, I don't understand why God healed them and he won't heal me. Could it be? <laughs> By some stretch of the imagination. Oh, probably not, but could it be? <laughs> that is your fault, not God's. <laughs> oh, yeah. Say it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Lest there be any doubt as to their position. Dear friends, if you begin with the premise that it is always God's will to be healed and a person prays for that healing, but the healing does not come, then you can wordsmith it all day long, you can pontificate on it till the cows come home, but the fault must always lie squarely at the foot of the sick believer. There's no other conclusion which one can draw. If you're sick, it's your fault. So are there any proof texts to which the faith preachers would appeal that substantiate their doctrine that it is always God's will for us to be physically healed. There are a few of them, and I'd like us to look at a few. Don't have time to look at all of them. But one of them, amazingly enough, is Ephesians 5.23. Benny Hinn 
writes this. And now the Bible says in Ephesians 5.23 that Jesus Christ is a savior of the body. He is not only the savior of the soul, he is a savior of the body. Ladies and gentlemen, you can cry out, you are the savior of my body, Lord Jesus. You are the savior of my soul. If Jesus Christ is the savior of the body, then your body ought to be made whole. Sounds logical, doesn't it? It does, until you actually read Ephesians 5.23. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. Dear friends, one need not be a Greek scholar to know that the body in Ephesians 5.23 is not talking about your flesh and blood body. It's talking about the church. In this kind of Mickey Mouse hermeneutics, this kind of Mickey Mouse Bible interpretation would be comical if it weren't that it were leading so many people astray. Another one of their proof texts is Hebrews 13.8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Let me show you this from Dr. Michael Brown. Brown writes, the problem with these cessationist positions is that they fail to appreciate that who Jesus was remains who he is. And he cites Hebrews 13.8. And so their logic is, is that Jesus healed everyone in his earthly ministry He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, and so therefore it is Jesus' will that all of us be healed today. Well, uh, that's emphatically not true. For one thing, did Jesus heal every sick person with whom he came into contact? No, he did not. Uh, John chapter 5 has but one example. The pool of Bethesda says that there was a multitude Right? A multitude of the sick laying there. How many did Jesus heal? Just one. Just one. In fact, uh, earlier this year in February, I was in Israel with a friend of mine named Jim Osmond. We were there on a, a tour and we went to the Pool of Bethesda. It's been excavated. It's there and it actually still has some water down at the bottom of it. And you remember in John chapter 5, it says that um, an angel would come and trouble the waters and whoever was the first one in when the waters were troubled were healed. And as we were walking up to the pool of Bethesda, uh, Jim looked at me and he said, he said, if I see the slightest agitation in that water, I'm picking you up and throwing you in there. <laughs> but um, wasn't necessary. So what about this? Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Well, let me, let me show you how quickly this logic breaks down. Jesus, of course, did not come into existence 2,000 years ago at Bethlehem. The second person of the triune God has been in existence from eternity past. In fact, he is the creator. And so to use that logic, we might also wonder, well, if Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever... Uh, is, is God still parting Red Seas today? Well, no, he's not. Is God still making donkeys talk today? Well, no, he's not. And then we might also ask the question, well, if Jesus is the same yesterday and today and forever, then why aren't we still sacrificing animals today? Old Testament Hebrews sacrificed animals by the millions. We're not sacrificing animals today. Why not? I thought he was the same yesterday, today, and forever. You see how quickly this logic breaks down? Jesus has not changed. His character and his nature has not changed. But the way in which God interacts with his creation absolutely has changed over the millennium, right? Jesus offered himself as a one-time time sacrifice. So there's no longer a need to sacrifice animals. But he himself has not changed. The way in which he interacts with his creation absolutely has Another one of their proof texts is the Lord's Prayer. When Jesus said, pray in this way, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And they say, well, however things are in heaven, well, that's the way they should be here on earth. Watch this from Bill Johnson. Explain to me what kingdom culture is. Well, culture is the way you do life. It's your value system. It's, mm -hmm. it's how you respond to relationships and money and all these things. It's just, it's the, it's the preset values that you carry in your heart that determine how you do life. 
but kingdom culture is is how heaven functions and when we pray this prayer on earth as as it is in heaven it's not just a prayer about eternity it's actually a prayer for right now it's god's intention right now to influence my circle of influence with a manifestation of his presence in such a way that it mirrors heaven that means there's no cancer there there's not to be cancer here so when we pray for someone to be healed we do it based on the example given us in that prayer there's none there there's not to be any here so the logic is well there's no cancer in heaven so there shouldn't be any cancer here well let me tell you show you how quickly this logic breaks down there's marriage here on earth, right? Is there marriage in heaven? Nope. No, there's not. See how quickly this breaks down? And I might point something else out. What has Bill Johnson got on his face? Eyeglasses. Are there eyeglasses in heaven? Nope. And yet he's got a pair of them resting on his nose. Dear friends, never trust a faith healer who's wearing eyeglasses. Now, it is tragically ironic that he would say, well, there's not any cancer in heaven, so there shouldn't be any cancer here. Bill Johnson's own wife, Benny Johnson, died last summer from cancer. I take no joy in that. I simply point out that what the faith preachers preach doesn't even work for them. And if what the faith preachers preach doesn't work for them, that ought to be a clue to them. There just might be something wrong with what they're preaching. Watch this from Bill Johnson. So do you believe that it's God's will to heal everyone? Is that like Bethel standard teaching? or? A... <laughs> I, I have to approach that it is. I have to approach that it's always God's will. And... Uh, and my lead on that is everybody the Father sent Jesus to, he healed. So it's always God's will to be healed because everyone that the Father sent Jesus to, he healed. Well, we've already talked about how that is just simply not true. Pool of Bethesda, Jesus healed one out of a multitude. The Apostle Paul prayed, uh, Lord, take this thorn, this scallops, this stake in the flesh, Take it away from me. Now, there's debate as to what exactly that thorn was, and I personally don't even think that it was a, a physical ailment. I think that was symbolic of false teachers back in Corinth. But whatever it was, whether it was a physical infirmity, whether it was symbolic of false apostles that were persecuting him and opposing him in his ministry, he asked God to take this affliction away, and Jesus said, No, my grace is sufficient for you. For strength is made perfect in weakness. This from Bill Johnson. And, and so it was a different idea. It wasn't like if, if it's your Lord, if it's your will. Oh, no, no. So no, it's not like that. Um, having that um, in your prayer or in your thought life. Because in your, it's like practical theology. Like you approach everybody like the Lord's going to move right now. Yeah, yeah. And I can't pray if it's your will because for me that's a prayer of unbelief. I can't pray if it's your will, because for me, that's a prayer of unbelief. Never mind that Jesus himself in the garden said, Father, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but thine be done. So I guess, according to Bill Johnson, Jesus was praying a prayer of unbelief. You see the implications of what they teach. They're dreadful. I would refer to you to James chapter 4. James, the half-brother of Jesus, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. So who are you going to believe? Bill Johnson or James, the half-brother of Jesus Christ, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God? I don't know. Jump ball on that one. Another one of their proof texts is 3 John 2. This is like the gold standard of the prosperity gospel. 
Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in good health, even as thy soul prospers. And the faith preachers say, see, there it is, right there in black and white. God wants us to prosper and be in good health, health and wealth. Watch this from Joseph Prince. Amen, let's do it. Third John, chapter one, verse two. It says, uh, Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. Now, the apostle John would not express something that would not be God's will. God would not allow uh, this statement to be put in his holy scriptures if it's not inspired. Every scripture, the Bible says all scripture is God breathed. So based upon 3 John 2, they say it's always God's will for us to prosper and be in good health, health and wealth. Well, yes, this scripture is God-breathed, like all of scripture is, but to make a blanket promise for guaranteed money and guaranteed healing is taking this verse way beyond what it was ever intended. In fact, this is a greeting that John gives to his friend Gaius. You would see Gaius' name in the first verse of this short little book of 3 John. And, and John opens his letter to Gaius in much the same way that you and I would open a letter or an email that we write to one of our friends today. Basically, John is saying this, Dear Gaius, I hope that this finds you doing well. Dear friends, that's all in the world he's saying. This is not a guaranteed blanket promise for, for money and healing. This was a common greeting in a letter 2,000 years ago. It remains a common greeting today, just in a little bit different form. Foundational to the faith preacher's assertion that it is always God's will for us to be healed is their teaching that physical healing is provided for in the atonement, the work that Jesus did for us on the cross. Now, sadly, the faith preachers don't believe that Jesus paid for our sins on the cross. They believe that he paid for our sins down in hell where he was tortured, died a spiritual death, and had to be reborn. But that's a whole other uh, issue. It's a whole other problem that they have. But they all appeal to Isaiah 53, 4, and 5. Watch this from Andrew Womack. Jesus placed your and my sickness and diseases, infirmities, upon Jesus, and he bore them 2,000 years ago. If he already paid for your healing, how can you doubt that you are healed? So their logic is this. Sin resulted in sickness and disease, and when, which it did, that is correct. And when Jesus died on the cross, he paid for our sins. He also paid for all of the consequences of those sins, one of which is sickness and disease. And they go to Isaiah 53, 4 and 5, which says this, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. And they look at these two words that I have highlighted here, griefs and sorrows, and they say that another way to render these two words is as sickness and pain, respectively. Therefore, Jesus bore our sickness, he carried our pain, and because he bore our sickness, he carried our pain, we should not have to. Now, in a sense, they are right. These two words in Hebrew do have multiple possible renderings, and sickness and pain are legitimate renderings of these two words. So how do you know which rendering is correct? Well, you know which rendering is correct by looking at the context of the passage. And the context of the passage becomes very clear just by looking at the next verse, verse 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. So it's very clear that the primary context of Isaiah chapter 53 is not physical healing, it's spiritual healing. Not healing from sickness and disease, but healing from sin. We see that from these two words, transgressions and iniquities. Yet how many times have we heard Benny Hinn or one of these other prosperity preachers say, by his stripes, we are healed, so you ought to be physically healed. 
That's not the primary context. The primary context is being healed of sin, not sickness and disease. In fact, read chapter Isaiah 53, the whole thing, going back to chapter 52, all the way through 53, what will you see? Sin, transgression. He bore the sins of many over and over and over. Clearly, sin is in view, primarily, not sickness and disease, not cancer and arthritis. So, what is the answer to our question? Is physical healing provided for in the atonement? I might surprise you with the answer. Yes, yes. Physical healing is provided for in the atonement. Dear friends, the reason that I'm crippled, the reason I have cerebral palsy, is because of sin. Not my personal sin, but the sin of Adam and Eve. When Adam and Eve sinned, when they ate of that fruit, whatever that fruit was, sin entered the world, so did sickness and disease and ultimately death, physical and spiritual death. So the reason I'm crippled is because of sin. The reason many of you right now are wearing eyeglasses, that's because of sin. Not your personal sin, but the sin of Adam and Eve. Next time you catch a cold, you can blame Adam and Eve for that. It's just one of the consequences of living in a fallen world. So when Jesus came and he died on the cross, he paid for our sins. He also paid for all of the consequences of those sins, one of which is sickness and disease. So yes, physical healing is provided for in the atonement. But here's where the faith preachers get it very, very wrong. Not all of the benefits of the atonement are promised to be fully realized this side of heaven. Okay? Not all the benefits of the atonement are promised to be fully realized this side of heaven. Some of the benefits of Jesus' atonement we will not realize until the other side of heaven. And healing from sickness and disease is one of those benefits. A glorified body is also provided for in the atonement. Raise your hand if you've got your glorified body. What? No, nobody here today has a glorified body? Well, why not? It's provided for in the atonement. It's not promised to be realized here. Dear friends, when we die and we go to heaven, for all of us who are in Christ Jesus, we're not taking our sickness and disease with us. No more cancer, no more arthritis, no more multiple sclerosis. Why? Because our healing has been provided for, bought and paid for with the blood, death, and bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. But to be real honest with you, dear ones, when we die and go to heaven, I'm not sure it's even going to cross our minds that we no longer have our sickness and disease. I'm not sure we're even going to give it much of a second thought. Why? Because we're going to have better things to think about. Dear friends, we will be in the presence of Christ we will know Christ. We will be able to worship Christ fully. We will bask in his glory, in his majesty for all of eternity. We will be in awe of him. He is the joy and the glory of heaven. So many times I hear heaven described by Christians or at least professing Christians. Oh, it's going it's to be this big family reunion. You know, I'm going to see grandma and grandpa and I'm going to walk on streets of gold and I'm going to have my own little personal mansion, even though that's not really the right rendering of that word, but let's go with it anyway. You know, and have, heaven's this big family reunion. Well, yeah, yes, we, we will be reunited with our loved ones, provided, of course, that they were in Christ when they preceded us in death. But that's not the joy of heaven. The joy of heaven is Christ, knowing Christ. He is the joy and the glory of heaven. And if your view of heaven is a big family reunion, then might I submit to you that your view of heaven is far too small? 
that your view of Jesus is far too small? He is the joy and the glory of heaven. He is who makes heaven, heaven. I can honestly tell you, when I think of heaven, I rarely, if ever, think about being free of my crutches. But you know what I do think about? You know what does capture my heart? You know what does capture my affections? Being free of my sin. That's what captures my heart. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. He is who makes heaven, heaven. What of the biblical record? Can we look through the Bible and find examples of faithful servants of God who were sick and were not healed? Absolutely. Trophimus was left sick at Miletus. Epaphroditus was sick to the point of death. The Apostle Paul encouraged Timothy to take a little wine for his stomach in his frequent ailments. Now I find that very interesting. Notice that when the Apostle Paul heard about Timothy's stomach problems and frequent ailments, Paul did not write to Timothy and say, uh, Timothy, go see a faith healer. And be sure you sow a seed into his ministry so you can reap a harvest. Take a little wine for your stomach and your frequent ailments. I find that interesting on yet another level because the Apostle Paul wrote this to Timothy about the year A.D. 64, about A.D. 64. Let's back up 10 years to the year A.D. 54. What's going on in the year A.D. 54? The events of Acts chapter 19 are going on. What's happening in Acts chapter 19? Extraordinary miracles of healing. So extraordinary that even handkerchiefs and aprons were being taken from the Apostle Paul, delivered to sick people, and God was healing the sick through the agents of these handkerchiefs and aprons remotely at distances in the year A.D. 54. Extraordinary miracles of healing. Fast forward 10 years to the year A.D. 64. No handkerchiefs and aprons going forth from the Apostle Paul. What changed? Something pretty significant changed, did it not? Could it be that even in that 10-year span, that the apostolic gifts, the sign gifts, had already begun to fade away, had already begun to pass out of operation? Two years later, Paul is writing 2 Timothy, and he says that he was with Trophimus, and he left him sick at Miletus. Paul didn't heal him. He didn't lay hands on him. He was with him. He didn't do any of those things. He left him sick. Interesting internal evidence, I think, that even by that time, that the sign gifts had already begun to fade away. They had already fulfilled the purpose for which they had been given. They were no longer needed, and they were beginning to fade away. Job. Job is the 800-pound theological gorilla sitting in the living room of the prosperity preachers, none of whom want to admit his heir. Job is a problem for the prosperity gospel. Because here you have a man who was upright, righteous, walked with the Lord, shunned evil, and yet God still allowed Satan to come and to strike from Job everything that he had. His possessions destroyed, his family dead, his own health deteriorated. Job suffered unimaginably. So what do the prosperity preachers do with Job? It's hard to ignore an entire book out of the Bible. So you know what they do to Job? They turn the tables on Job. They say that the reason these calamities fell upon Job, they were all results of his negative confessions. Job spoke negative words and brought these things upon himself. Joyce Meyer writes this in her book, Approval Addiction. She says, For the thing which I greatly fear comes upon me, and that of which I am afraid befalls me, quoting Job chapter 3, verse 25. 
Fear is a terrible emotion, a self-fulfilling one. Job had fears concerning his children and finally reached a place in his life where he saw his fears coming to pass. Now, wait, wait a minute. I've read through the book of Job a number of times. I don't remember anything in the book of Job about him having fears concerning his children. She just literally makes that up. The Bible says it will be unto us as we believe. And it takes that verse out of context too. That principle works in the negative as well as the positive. So it was all Job's fault. Job spoke negative words. He had fear and he brought all these things upon himself. Job tapped into the dark side of the force. It was all Job's fault. Completely misses the point of the book of Job. I mean misses it entirely. Dear friends, you know what the point of the book of Job is? The sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God. God can do whatever he wants to do. And you know what? Sometimes that means making us sick. Now, do you believe that? Do you believe that God ever makes people sick? Well, you tell that to someone who's been listening to Joel Osteen, they'll probably pass out right on the spot. But if God doesn't make people sick, then someone needs to inform him because he certainly seems to, to think that he does. Exodus chapter 4, verse 11, the Lord said unto Moses, who has made man's mouth or who makes him dumb or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Friends, that's God talking there. I don't know how you get around that. God's speaking again. See now that I, I am he. There is no God besides me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded and it is I who heal. And there is no one who can deliver from my hand. Sometimes God makes people sick. Now, sometimes we make ourselves sick, don't we? And if you lay around all day long on the couch and you eat nothing but ding-dongs and Twinkies and Ho-Hos and Little Debbie Fudge Creams and you drink nothing but Dr. Pepper and you go through three or four packs of cigarettes a day, don't be surprised if you have some health problems. You know, sometimes we make ourselves sick. Sometimes people get sick simply because people get sick. We live in a fallen world and people get sick. Sometimes God makes us sick. Why would he do that? To watch us suffer? No, a thousand times no. But sometimes God makes us sick to sanctify us and ultimately to glorify himself. I've met a number of people over the years who have uh, truly just been amazing portraits of the grace of God. This is just one of those individuals. This is Rich. Rich I met in Long Island, New York a number of years ago. And Rich was born able-bodied. Nothing wrong with Rich. God saved Rich when he was 19 years old. And then just a few years later, Rich was in a motorcycle accident. And it left him completely paralyzed. No use of his legs at all. Uh, very, very little use of his arm. He had just enough mov movement in his arm to uh, manipulate the joystick of his electric wheelchair. Rich lived with his brother and his brother's wife, sister-in-law, neither of whom were believers, but Rich was. And every Sunday morning, Rich would ask his brother and sister-in-law to get him up out of bed. And they would get him up out of bed. They would put him in his electric wheelchair they would bathe him first, dress him, put him in his electric wheelchair. And Rich would drive his electric wheelchair five miles one way to church every single Sunday. Even when it was raining, they put a poncho over him. And he would drive his electric wheelchair five miles one way to church in the rain. The pastor told me, he said, Justin Rich is the most faithful church member I've got. The only thing that would keep Rich from going to church is if it was snowing and his wheelchair just wouldn't go in the snow. But other than that, he was there. He had bumper stickers on the back of his wheelchair with scripture verses on them. He was quite literally a rolling testimony for Christ. How many people saw this man 
Sunday in, Sunday out, week after week after week, driving his electric wheelchair five miles, one way to church, sometimes in the rain, with a smile on his face, scripture on the back. Friends, God is glorified in that. God is glorified in that. And yet we've got prosperity preachers today telling us that we should have our best life now. Joel Osteen talks about how getting a good parking spot at the mall is the favor of God. Really. Tell that to Rich. Tell that to our brothers and sisters in Christ in many parts of the world right now who are being persecuted, hard persecution for their faith in Christ. Tell that to our brothers and sisters in Christ in Iran, in Syria, North Korea, that the favor of God is getting a good parking spot at the mall in the United States of America. Are you kidding me? These prosperity preachers have no understanding of God's sovereignty. They have no understanding of the gospel. They have no understanding of what it means to suffer for the glory of Christ. For to you it has been granted not only to believe in Christ, but to suffer for his sake. Philippians 1.29. They have no compartment for that. They have no theology for that. You might have noticed I spoke of Rich in past terms because, uh, past tense, because Rich is now in heaven. His faith has now been made sight. Galatians chapter 4 verse 13, Paul writes, but you know that it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time. And that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you did not despise nor loathe, but you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus himself. This is the man who wrote roughly a third of the New Testament, and he was sick. Elisha had a double portion anointing of the great prophet Elijah, yet we read in 2 Kings 13 that Elisha was fallen sick of his sickness whereof he died. Dear friends, it is a matter of biblical record that not everyone who loved the Lord, not everyone who served him faithfully walked in perfect divine health. It's not a matter of opinion. It's not up for debate. It's simply a matter of biblical record. Do I believe that God still physically heals people today? Yes, I do. I believe that he not only can, but on occasion, when it is his sovereign will to do so, he does. Do I think that's common? No, I don't think it's common. But I have heard a few very good, credible testimonies of truly miraculous healing that had no explanation in the medical field, none. It had to be God. Yes, God does that when it pleases him to do so. But is it always God's will for us to be healed? No, it is not. It wasn't in the days of the Bible and is not today either. The faith preachers would say, well, if you're not healed, it's just because uh, you don't have enough faith. You don't have enough faith to be healed. Watch this from Andrew Womack. And so I really believe that on a personal level, I have zero fear that I can reach out and touch anybody who's got sickness or something on them. And I believe that I am just as protected as Jesus is. Instead of having this fear about everybody contaminating me, man, I look at it this way, that I've got the supernatural power of God living on the inside of me. And if I come in with sickness, I can reach out and touch it's them and healed. my healing will be transmitted instead of their sickness. Amen. That was recorded or at least aired in March of 2020 when everybody was talking about COVID. COVID was really getting ramped up. He said, I'm not afraid of COVID. In fact, I can reach out and touch someone. Not only will I not get sick, healing power will go out of me into that person and that person will be healed. So I guess Andrew Womack is the cure for COVID-19. You know, forget about the Fauci ouchie, just, just have Andrew Womack touch you and it's all goes away. Because see, there are some people like me who know that no plague is going to come nigh my dwelling. 
if a germ touches me, it's going to die. And I believe that 100%. If a germ touches him, it's, it's going to die. He's just that spiritual. He's got all that faith. And well, if you're sick, it's because you're just not as spiritual as Andrew Womack. You don't have as much faith as Andrew Womack. Well, here's a man who um, doesn't have much faith. This is David Miller. David Miller calls himself a country preacher at large. Um, from Arkansas, thick, thick southern accent. Of course, you see that he's in a wheelchair. David Miller was born able-bodied, and then uh, he contracted some disease. I've heard the name of it. it. I can't pronounce it. It's similar to muscular dystrophy, but, but worse. And over the years, his muscles have atrophied, deteriorated to the point where he is in a wheelchair. He is a quadriplegic, just a little bit of movement in his left hand to move a joystick. You can see, of course, his right hand is, is just withered and limp. Um, and if the disease continues to progress, his, the muscles in his chest will atrophy to the point where he'll no longer be able to breathe and it will kill him. Um, this is a picture of him preaching. You might notice he doesn't have a Bible in front of him. The reason he doesn't have a Bible in front of him is because he can't turn the pages of his Bible. So he is committed to memory voluminous amounts of Scripture. And he preaches expositionally from memory. Oh, but he just doesn't have enough faith, right? Because if he had enough faith, you know, he, he wouldn't be in that wheelchair. He clearly doesn't have enough faith to be healed. Neither does his son. His son, believe it or not, is also a quadriplegic, but not for the same reason. His son was in a car accident and it left him a quadriplegic. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Father and son. But both of these men love the Lord. Or maybe they don't, right? Because if they truly love the Lord, if they truly had faith, they wouldn't be in those wheelchairs. You see the cruelty. You see the unimaginable cruelty of this movement. Is faith required for us to receive physical healing from God? Let me put it in these terms, dear friends. If you are here this morning and you know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, don't let anybody ever tell you that you don't have enough faith to be healed. Because if you have been granted the faith to be saved, you have certainly got faith to be healed. Being saved is by far the greatest miracle. The greatest miracle is not when the blind see. It's not when the lame walk. The greatest miracle is when the dead are raised. And not physically dead, spiritually dead. Dead in trespasses and sins, raised to newness of life in Christ. That is the greatest miracle. When God makes us alive. If you have been granted the faith to be saved, don't let anybody ever tell you that you don't have enough faith to be healed. Being saved is by far the greatest miracle. And I just want to close this morning with the gospel. Has that miracle taken place in your life this morning? Has there been a time in your life when you have been convicted by the Holy Spirit of God that you are a sinner? that you have broken God's laws. Thou shalt not lie. Every single person in here has told lies. We are all liars. Thou shalt not steal. If you have ever taken something that does not belong to you, the value of what you take is irrelevant. But if you've ever taken something that does not belong to you, you're a thief. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. If you have ever used God's, in an, God's name in an irreverent way, that is blasphemy. We blaspheme God in word and in deed. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Don't let yourself off the hook too quickly. Jesus says, if you look at a woman with lust, you have committed adultery already in your heart. If you have ever looked at another person with lust, you're an adulterer. Go through God's moral law. We have all broken his laws thousands of times.
And just like when we break laws on earth, there's a penalty to be paid. How much more so when we break the laws of God? But because we have sinned against God who is eternal, the punishment of that sin is also eternal. And if we die in our sin, we will very rightly, very justly, go to a very real place that the Bible calls hell, where the worm will not die, the fire will not be quenched. There will be wailing, weeping, gnashing of teeth. The full undiluted fury of God's wrath will be poured out for all of eternity and it will never end. And there is nothing you and I can do to save ourselves. Our works are as filthy rags before a thrice holy God. Lay your works down. They will profit you nothing. We all stand condemned in our sin. That's the bad news. But the good news of the gospel is this, is that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to this earth. And Jesus lived a perfect life. Jesus was one person with how many natures? Two. Truly God, truly man, fully God, fully man, the God-man. And Jesus, as the God-man, lived a perfect life to the perfect satisfaction of God the Father. And then Jesus willingly gave his life on the cross. His life was not taken, he gave it. And on the cross, this perfect person offered his perfect life as a perfect sacrifice to perfectly satisfy the perfect wrath of God. Died on the cross, three days later, bodily raised from the dead, proving himself to be who he said he was, God in human flesh. And the only way to have the wrath of God removed is to repent of sin, turn from sin, and place your trust in what he did on Calvary's tree. There is salvation in no one else. You must repent of sin. Well, how do I know if I've repented? Repentance is something that so many people do not understand. Dear friends, genuine repentance Number one, is in and of itself granted by God. God grants repentance. And when God grants repentance, yes, our minds are changed. We always hear, oh, repentance is metanoia, changing your mind. Well, yes, it is that. But true repentance granted by God changes everything about us. Our desires are changed. Our affections are changed. We begin to love what God loves and we hate what God hates. And one of the telltale signs that the new birth has taken place, one of the ways that you can know you have a new relationship with the Savior is whether or not you have a new relationship with sin. The Bible speaks of two different kinds of sorrow over sin. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, a worldly sorrow and a godly sorrow. Paul says that a worldly sorrow leads to death. What is a worldly sorrow? A worldly sorrow is nothing more than a guilty conscience. What would happen to me if my sin were exposed? What would be the consequences to me? And so we try to cover up our sin, not because we grieve over it, but because we don't want the consequences of it. But if we could get away with it, you see, if nobody would know what we're doing on the side, if nobody would know, if my spouse wouldn't know what I'm looking at on the computer, if I could get away with it, I'd go right back to it because that's what I really want. That is a worldly sorrow and a worldly sorrow leads to death, eternal death. But then there's this other kind of sorrow over sin. That is a godly sorrow. What is a godly sorrow? Well, Paul says that a godly sorrow leads to repentance unto salvation. A godly sorrow is that sorrow over sin that is vertically oriented. A godly sorrow comes when we grieve over our sin because we understand that our sin grieves God and we do not want to grieve him. We do not want to grieve his person. He has been so good, so kind, so faithful, so merciful to us that we don't want to grieve him and we understand our sin grieves God and we do not want to grieve him. A godly sorrow is the kind of sorrow that David had in Psalm chapter 51 when David cried out, Against you and you alone, O Yahweh, have I sinned. 
My sin is ever before me. You are righteous when you speak. You are blameless when you judge. In other words, I am undone. I have no excuse. David was crushed over his sin. Do you grieve over your sin? It's not that Christians cannot sin. I'm not talking about sinless perfection. As Christians, we can and do sin. But dear friends, here's the difference. Here's the difference between a true Christian and a false professor of Christ. As a true Christian, you and I stumble into sin, but we don't swim in it. We don't relish sin. We don't look for opportunities to sin. We don't plan out our sin. When we do sin, it grieves us. Does your sin grieve you? If you're not certain of where you are in your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, I would encourage you to get real honest before him. Cry out to him. Confess your sins. Repent. Place your trust in him. And if you will come to Christ in this godly sorrow over sin, if you will come to Christ empty-handed, no confidence in yourself, all of your confidence in Christ, he will save you. You will pass from death to life. Old things passed away, behold, all things made new. And Jesus himself will be our reward. That is the good news of the gospel. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, your gospel is indeed good news. As your gospel has been preached, we pray that your Holy Spirit would do his work would convict of sin, righteousness, and judgment, would convict of the truth of the gospel. If there be any lost sheep here today, we pray that they would hear the voice of the shepherd. We pray that they would go to him and find rest for their souls. I pray your blessings on each and every one who is here. I ask your blessings on Pastor Kurt and the elders, this local body of believers, Lord. May, may this lamp stand here burn brightly for the glory of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.